I'm going to read from God's word from Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 to the end of chapter 53. So Isaiah 52:13 Behold my servant shall deal prudently he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high just as many were astonished at you so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men so shall he sprinkle many nations kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we did not esteem him surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him he has put him to grief when you shall make his soul an offering for sin he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand he shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. We come this evening to consider the message regarding the Messiah which Isaiah had given to him and which he records 
in the second part of his prophecy. And to clear the ground for what I want to say this evening, there are two matters by way of introduction that I think I just should say something about. And the first of these is the authorship of this part of the prophecy. I don't want to be distracted from my theme by talking about the voluminous discussion that's taken place regarding who wrote this part. But I do feel, to be clear, I have to state very unequivocally that I consider, in the light of the total witness of Scripture, that not only is the prophecy of Isaiah the product of one man's writing, but that that man is also the prophet Isaiah himself. And if you're wondering, if you're puzzled over these things, I'd especially draw your attention to the the testimony that's given in John's Gospel and chapter 6. Can I just read there verses 37 to 41? John the Apostle is speaking about Jesus and he says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And the, remark- the two remarkable features about that testimony. The one is that the first quotations from Isaiah 53 and the second quotations from Isaiah 6, and they are both alike attributed to the prophet. And the other thing that is remarkable there is the way in which John acknowledges that Isaiah saw Christ's glory and spoke of him in these passages. So I'm coming to you this evening on the basis that the prophecy we're looking at in the second part of Isaiah, from chapter 40 to the end, is the product of the same man, the same prophet, as wrote the beginning chapters. And the second matter I want to raise which I think we've got to recognize if we're going to understand this message in its fullness, is what I mentioned last week regarding the unfolding theology of the Old Testament. We saw last week that the promise of a messianic king had been gradually revealed over the centuries, right from the first promise of the gospel made in Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall of mankind. Promise had been made of one who was going to be the victor, but it was equally the case that the suffering involved in the redemptive process was hinted at right from the beginning. Because when the Lord spoke to the serpent, he said, you shall bruise his heel the heel of the seed of the woman. Now, 
I suppose that might be interpreted generally in connection with the damage that Satan, the serpent, would inflict on mankind over the generations. But just as the seed promise culminates in the one who is preeminently the seed, so too I think that there, right from the beginning, there was a not insignificant hint that injury and suffering would be incurred by one who is the essential and ultimate focus of the promise that was given there. And it's important to see that larger setting so that we have an all-inclusive view of God's purpose. If there is one thing that Isaiah 53 has suffered from, it's being looked at on its own. It's part of a prophecy, and that prophecy itself is part of the cumulative revelation of God's saving purpose that culminates with the coming of our Lord. And as we look and seek to understand the message that was delivered by God through Isaiah, we have the opportunity of focusing not just on the detail of the passage, but seeing how that detail meshes into the wonder of God's redemptive purpose. And it wasn't just back at the very beginning that there was this meshing of redemption and suffering. It's also the case that in the book of Psalms, there is the remarkable coincidence that's found in David's inspired poetry. Poetry that includes both royal psalms reflecting on the king, the messianic king, and foreshadowing and sometimes on occasions directly prophesying details of the king to come. And yet the same David in the same book of psalms has the psalms of the righteous sufferer. In the book of psalms they're not explicitly identified. The nearest that comes to it is Psalm 22. And even there it's not actually said. But it's remarkable that that body of inspired reflection, David, the psalmist, responding to what God had told his people about his saving purpose, presents these two very significant portraits. The king to come and the sufferer. So the ground had already been prepared in biblical revelation. The ground had been prepared, although not yet conclusively revealed, that these two portraits are the portraits of the one person. And it isn't really clear to what extent Isaiah himself understood the connection between the king and the sufferer. We saw that in the first part of his prophecy, he focused on the messianic king, the true descendant of David's line, uh, through whom the Lord would accomplish his purposes. And yet, in the second part of the prophecy, David, uh, Isaiah largely avoids language about David. He doesn't anywhere directly say, the one is the other. Because 
there seems to have been genuine difficulty. Even amongst the people of God, in integrating these two aspects of divine truth, until they were exemplified, that they were lived through by Christ himself. A suffering saviour, a suffering messiah, was an enigma that couldn't be grasped beforehand. Remember Peter's, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. When Christ himself told of the suffering that he was to undergo. And so as you read and as we read through Isaiah's prophecy, we're to think of him in the way in which Peter presents the prophets in his first, uh, the first chapter of his first letter. The prophets had the message revealed to them, but yet they were also searching, making careful inquiry as to what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They had the information, but it was in glimpses, it was particular scenes, and they were seeking to see, how does all this fit together? When will all this come to pass? And so, as Isaiah presents to us, in the later chapters of the prophecy, the servant of the Lord, the prophet himself is seeking to learn more about this person. But as he is presenting what has been revealed to him, it's abundantly clear that he had some idea of the royal credentials of the servant. In Isaiah 42 verse 4, and we'll come to look at this again more closely in just a moment, he predicts that the servant will establish justice in the earth. And it's significant that it's the word establish. It's not the servant is going to declare what justice consists of. A declaration would be the task of a prophet. A declaration of what, cons what constitutes justice is something that a spokesman of the Lord would be qualified to do. What's described there in Isaiah 42 is to establish justice. And that is an administrative role. That is a royal role in terms of the way society functioned in the ancient world. It is a ruler who comes and establishes justice, just as the prophet comes and declares what it consists of. So there's just a hint there of the fact that the servant has a role that relates to a king. But Isaiah saw more. And in chapter 52, verse 13, there is the language that the servant will be high and lifted up. And it is remarkable that there's only two other passages in this long prophecy where Isaiah uses the language, these two words, high and lifted up. One of them is in chapter 6, verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 
And the other passage is in chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Now, if those were the only places where Isaiah talked, used the language of height and exaltation, it perhaps wouldn't be so significant. But in fact, throughout the book, he uses the language of height and exaltation in many ways. It's a theme that he develops many times. But it's just in these three passages, this particular combination occurs. And I believe that that is indicative of the fact that he had glimpsed, he had seen something in the revelation that was pointing to the exaltation of the servant to the very throne of God. Indeed, I go further and suggest it indicates that that vision back in Isaiah chapter 6 was in fact a Christophany, a revelation of Jesus Christ before he came to the earth, rather than just a, a revelation of God in general. And that Isaiah the prophet himself was in many respects aware of this, however obscurely. This is part of what he, along with the other prophets, was searching, making careful inquiry about, wondering what manner of person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Now, in approaching chapters 40 to 66... It's important to recognize the significance of chapter 39. By the time Isaiah wrote chapter 39, the major threat that had existed against the southern kingdom of Judah in his own day, the threat from the Assyrians, had been largely averted. Sennacherib had advanced against Jerusalem and the Lord had routed him miraculously. His army was decimated and he turned back and went home. There was no doubt a sigh of relief in Judah. But that was not to be the final challenge to the southern kingdom. Isaiah had already been given by the Lord the knowledge that though the immediate crisis was over, there was another greater crisis ahead. A crisis that would come from the same direction, from the north, but not this time from the empire of Assyria, but from the empire of Babylon that took over from the Assyrians. And at the end of chapter 39, Isaiah is led to prophesy of the devastating impact that Babylon was going to have on the royal household on Jerusalem. When Babylon advanced against Judah, there would not be the last minute reprieve there had been when the Assyrians and Sennacherib advanced. Instead, the Lord was going to punish his people because of their transgression and their sin. And as Isaiah was brought by the Lord to consider this situation that was going to arise, 
he presents the prophecy of chapters 40 to 66. In these chapters, he is largely speaking to a subsequent generation. He's viewing not what happens when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians arrive at Jerusalem. He's viewing the situation beyond that, when the people are taken off into exile. And he is led by God to lay down, for the benefit of future generations, a message of encouragement. But it was also a message that was speaking to the people of his own day. Those who gave heed to the prophet knew as well as he did that the Lord had said there was this conqueror coming, that the people, their kings, the royal family, the whole land were going to be taken off into exile. And he was speaking to a land that was already devastated. Although the Assyrian armies had been turned back, Many people had been killed. Many people had been captured. Jerusalem had been laid siege. There had been much suffering and devastation. The people also had known exile in measure already because the northern kingdom had been taken off into exile by the Assyrians almost 20 years before. Many of them escaped. In Jerusalem of Hezekiah's day, there was a massive building program because there were so many refugees from the north. It's at that point that the the Mishnah, the second city, was built on the hill to the west of Jerusalem. So there were many people around Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, refugees from the north who had already lost relatives to exile in Mesopotamia. But you see, the real problem was not the challenge posed by Assyria or the challenge that was going to be posed 120 years later by Babylon. The challenge was the challenge of the people's own sin and failure. The problem that's being explored throughout these chapters is not so much whether the Lord can deal with an enemy, an aggressor like Sennacherib. He'd already shown that he could. The problem isn't really, can he deal with another aggressor in the form of Babylon? The ultimate question is, can he deal with the problem of his people's failure. Is it going to be the case that when the Lord lets the Babylonians come against Jerusalem and permits them not only to besiege the city but to capture it and take its people off into exile, is it the case that that is a sign, not that the gods of Babylon are more powerful than the God of Israel, but a sign that the people's sin and failure is so great that God's purposes have been frustrated by the internal corruption of those chosen to be the people of God. And that's the problem 
was the problem in Isaiah's own day, would be the problem for the Jews in exile, and is the problem that faces the church in every age and generation. How can it survive when it is itself so weak and sinful? And so Isaiah is given this grand series of visions that he describes for us in the second part of the book. And there are many different scenarios presented. Someone has likened these chapters to a piece of music in which various themes are introduced and then they fade into the background. Another theme becomes more prominent it again fades into the background. There is a whole series of themes being built up to a crescendo, to a climax, to fitting it all together. One of the themes you'll see a number of times is a sort of court scene, a courtroom scene, in which the gods of the nations are called to account, which they're challenged, do something, show that you really exist. Tell the future if you can. And God then says, I'll tell you the future. I'll tell you who's going to release my people uh, from their exile in Babylon. And in these presentations, time and again, Jacob or Israel, the terms used to describe the people of God in their historical actuality, because Jacob is there, the name of Jacob the trickster, who is also the one with the privileged status, renewed status of Israel, the one who strove with God and overcame. They are said to be the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And the Lord's commitment to them is such that though he will punish them for their sin, he will not cast them off forever. And he calls them to his courtroom. And he says, here are witnesses. Witnesses of my power to preserve and keep my people. Even though they are taken off by the superpower of the day into exile, they will return to their native land. And the fact of their return will be a demonstration of divine power because who had ever heard in those days of a people taken off into captivity, into exile, who came back to their own land? And it will also be a demonstration of divine foresight because it's announced in advance. Power, foresight, but will it solve the problem? Will it solve the problem of Israel, the people of God, who perpetually fail? Israel was chosen, called to be God's servant. But look at their history. Time and again they failed. That was why the Lord brought the Assyrians against the land. That was why the Lord was going to allow Nebuchadnezzar to come. It was divine judgment on their sin, their failure. Because they'd wandered from the Lord, they'd become estranged from him. 
And the question is, even supposing the Lord brings them back from Babylon to the promised land, what is there to prevent the same situation from happening again? It was all very well bringing them back from exile. But didn't history show that their constitution was such, their spiritual, their lack of spiritual fiber was such, that it was going to be another tale of broken commitments, another tale of loss of faith, of ineffectiveness? How could the problem of Israel's relationship with God be solved? How could God... True to righteous, to his own righteousness and justice. Say this people who failed so often can be brought back into favor. And the answer that's given is the same answer that underpins every provision for the needs of sinful mankind. It's the answer of divine grace. The Lord will overcome the problems. Because there is another servant. There are at least two uses of the term servant in these chapters in Isaiah. And it's only as we distinguish between them that we can begin to understand what is happening. In Isaiah chapter 41 and at verse 8. We very clearly have you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. We have there the picture of the people of God in covenant relationship with their Lord as his servant whom he has chosen. But there are four passages here that present another servant. These passages are often referred to as the servant songs. And though that term has a somewhat murky past in critical scholarship, it does provide a convenient designation for these four passages. And the first of them is Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 7, where... There is a dramatic beginning. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Same words as were used in chapter 41 of Israel. My servant whom I have chosen. It might at first seem that this is another description of the people. But it soon becomes apparent that this is a description of someone who has a role to play in respect of the people, because there in verse 6 he is called a covenant for the people. The servant's ministry is one of service for others. That's not where the word servant comes from. It's not because he is going to um, work on behalf of others that he's called a servant. He's called the servant because he is the Lord's servant, the one who is obedient to God. But whereas Israel, the people, were given a mission, a task, duties and responsibilities, and failed in carrying them out, this servant 
my servant is going to achieve what the people of Israel had failed to accomplish and he's going to achieve it on their behalf. So when it begins, behold, the people are being directed to focus their attention on this one. The people in their weakness and in their failure are being told, here is the one who will provide all that you have failed to do. And God equips the servant. I have put my spirit on him. An expression that reminds us of chapter 11, which we looked at last week, of the endowment of the spirit on the the root out of Jesse. And he is said to be the one who will bring justice to the nation. He is, that's in verse 4, chapter 42, verse 1. In chapter 42, verse 3, in faithfulness, reliability, he will bring forth justice. And then in verse 4, yet again, he is the one who will establish justice in the earth. Now, justice is not merely issuing judgment. Justice is not in this passage, in these passages, simply issuing verdicts, guilty, not guilty. Justice is ordering the affairs of mankind so that they correspond with the divine norms for human conduct. Justice is instruction in God's righteous ways. Indeed, there are some commentators who paraphrase the word justice here and say true religion. And what is being presented is a royal task, a kingly administration. This is the servant not coming in judgment on the peoples of the world, but the servant coming as the king who will establish a rule that corresponds to what God requires. And he's going to do so without the the blaze of self-advancement that's so often found with the pretensions of earthly rulers. There is no going to be no trumpet or fanfare. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. He's going to come with a gentle consideration for the needs of others, particularly the meek. He will effect his mission with quiet penetration, with quiet persuasion. And is there not perhaps even here just the hint of something more? He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He will not falter or be discouraged. Just the possibility of the potential for being overwhelmed by the vastness of his task. His commission is going to embrace the whole earth as he sets forth his law. Here is the servant, not just with a role for Israel, but a role that extends to the coastlands. And that term is used for the far off nations, for the whole world, as he brings spiritual enlightenment to mankind. Here is the first glimpse 
the first time this theme is taken up by Isaiah. And then the figure of the servant withdraws into the background of Isaiah's prophecy. Focus is then again on the people as the servant. That's how the servant can be described later on in chapter 42 as blind and deaf, verse 19. Who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? That's not a description of the Messiah. That's a description of Israel. Israel who had a task. They were to be the holy nation. They were to be the kingdom of priests. They were to mediate the Lord's truth to all the nations on earth. And they failed. They are deaf, they are blind. But the true servant who will come is the one who will achieve what Israel has failed to achieve. And so we find this matter brought to our attention again in what's called the second servant song that you find in chapter 49, at the beginning of the chapter there. Chapter 49, verses 1 to 6, people differ as to quite where the song ends. Here we find mention of the humanity of the servant before I was born. Here we find divine calling from the womb. The Lord called me. Here we find the servant equipped by God. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And he is given the designation of Israel. You are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. Not Israel the people who failed. Not Israel the people who so often fell short of what the Lord required of them. But here is the servant who will achieve all that he the Lord had in mind for his people. I think it's significant that he is called Israel and not Jacob. So often throughout this portion of the prophecy, the names Israel and Jacob are used together. But whereas Jacob was a very fitting term to apply to Israel, to remind them of the character of their forefather, to remind them of their own character, the true servant, the servant who is the Messiah, although he is called Israel, he is never used, the term Jacob is not used of him. So here we have him in his humanity, in his divine calling, in his being equipped, in his being given the tasks that, were to, that should have been carried out by the people. But then we have verse 4 of chapter 49, in which the servant relates his frustration, his sense of failure. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Here is one who is truly human, who's looking at the results of his ministry. And he can't see anything immediately. He thought there might have been fruit and there's none there. 
He had labored. He had worked to the point of weariness and exhaustion. He had spent his strength. The lack of fruit didn't arise because of absence of commitment. The lack of fruit didn't arise because of absence of exertion. It arose because of incomprehension and opposition. Here we have the humiliation of the messianic servant. It seems to anticipate incidents in Christ's ministry, such as when he said to his disciples, after so many others had left, do you also wish to go away? I've labored to no purpose. But still, he committed the success of his mission to the Lord. Yet what is due to me, yet my judgment is with the Lord. And their judgment is being used in the sense of verdict. It's what the Lord thinks I've done that really matters. And so there then follows the very positive language of the Lord designating the servant as the one who will gather Jacob back to him, gather Israel to himself, and who gives to the servant a role that extends as a light for the Gentiles to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So there is this picture of the servant's task that's being built up as well as a picture of the servant. A picture that has glimpses of deity, perhaps a mention of royalty, but also of a task that is overwhelming, a task that seems well nigh impossible, and yet a task that's extended in the face of difficulty so that it encompasses all the earth. You'll find the third servant song in chapter 50, verses 4 to 8. Similar themes again. The prophet is, the, the um, servant is um, equipped as a prophet to speak in a way that will sustain the weary. And he carries through as the pupil of the Lord all that the Lord requires of him. But the testimony is of hostility and opposition. The testimony is of those who will beat him, those who will pull out his beard, those who will mock and spit on him. And here we are got presented not just what came true at the time of our Lord's death. The language does allude to that. One commentator calls the third servant's song the, the Golgotha, the Gethsemane song, because it points to the intensity of the, the agony of our Lord. And yet at the same time it points to his resolution and courage and commitment. I have set my face like flint. It is a picture of the resolution that was required to go on with the task, immense though it was, in the face of opposition and rejection that had to be endured not just at the end, but throughout the life, throughout his lifetime, and especially throughout his public ministry. And that note of opposition climaxes 
in the fourth servant song that was read to us earlier. It's not an intrusion into these chapters. This is the climactic answer as to how the Lord could justly bring his people out of Babylon. It is the climactic answer as to how the Lord is going to deal with the problem of his people's failure to achieve, his people's failure to live up to all that's required of them. The song is usually analyzed as consisting of five stanzas of three verses each. And the first stanza, which is the last three verses of chapter 52, now, the first stanza begins by asserting the success of the servant. And this is something we have to hold in mind. There's quite a different picture coming. There's a picture coming of suffering. There's a picture coming of abasement and death. But don't misunderstand these pictures. Don't misunderstand what awaits the servant. There is something far greater, and that is that through it he will achieve victory. And so the message begins, look, behold, see my servant. The translation I have here in my hand says, will act wisely. But in the footnote it also has, will prosper. Uh, the Hebrew word can mean both things. Uh, it, it talks of action that is undertaken so prudently that it will meet with success. I, I think it's more success than acting wisely at this point. The, this verse is setting out the fact that all the servant does has to be understood as divinely approved of and on the path that the Lord will bless my servant will succeed. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But at what a price. The price of suffering, intense suffering. The guaranteed outcome doesn't diminish the painfulness of the experience. It doesn't reduce the reality of the testing that had to be faced in misunderstanding, in rejection, in horrific maltreatment, so that he was disfigured beyond that of any man. But he had a role to perform, and he performed it completely. Here in verse 15, in the first stanza, I think we've got the first hint of the way in which he will do that. So will he sprinkle many nations. Again, it's, so the word sprinkle is one that has caused controversy. There are those who propose it should be translated startle. It uh, seems to me that the, the word is used many other times in the Old Testament. And elsewhere, it's always part of priestly, sacrificial language. I think it's used here by way of anticipation of what's said at the end of the poem. It refers, the word refers to the sprinkling of sacrificial blood or oil or water by a priest. 
And here we've got the servant's work presented as a way of effecting priestly purification of the nations from sin. And that is going to be accomplished through suffering. And this is something that contradicts worldly wisdom. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. What they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. The Lord's appointed path for his servant to victory, to complete accomplishment of his task, is not, going, is not the path that worldly wisdom would dictate of the conqueror who comes, who rides in state roughshod over others. It is the path of suffering. The rulers of this world are left aghast, unable to say anything when, they, when it hits home the message of the way in which the Lord's servant carries out this task. The conventional wisdom of the world's been turned upside down. And there is this picture of the servant sprinkling, the servant acting as a priest to cleanse the pollution of many nations, to regenerate, renew, spiritually revitalize many nations in a way that leaves the kings and the politicians flabbergasted because this is not what their wisdom had said was the way forward. And then we have three stanzas of testimony. A report is given by a group who've changed their mind about the servant and who are astonished that others don't see things as clearly as they now do. They confess, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Is he in effect saying, why don't others understand what we're now telling them? And they go back and they give a resume of the servant's life. Yes, he had an unpretentious start. If you were looking for the Lord's servant, the servant of the omnipotent God, surely you would look in a king's court in the way in which the wise men from the east uh, went to Herod and said, we're looking for somebody who's just been born. If you were looking for some notable public person, you would look in the crowd for someone who's enjoying their applause, fame. And they say, if you'd looked at the servant, looking for him or looking for these things, you would have been disappointed. He was a root out of dry ground. He was somebody who had a humble beginning, an ordinary appearance. Someone who knew life's sorrows and grief, rejected by others. And the speakers confess, we esteemed him not. We were as bad as everybody else. We didn't understand what was going on. Now that had been the lot of many of Israel's prophets. The Lord had sent his prophets to his people with the message of truth. And the prophets were rejected. Uh, the people despised them. Uh, the people sometimes went so far as putting them to death. Why is this not just a description 
of a prophet. Because as they then go on in the third stanza, verses 4 to 6, to explain, there was something going on far more than just relaying the Lord's message. They tell how or why they had changed their minds. Those who had known the servant, Isaiah's vision is projected into the future. He's way beyond the exile. He's been brought forward in vision to the time of Christ. And there is presented to him by the Lord this report from those who were the contemporaries of the coming Messiah. And they confess, we quite misunderstood the situation. We didn't appreciate what had been going on right before our very eyes. And there is in verses 4 to 6 as clear an exposition of the doctrine of substitution as can be found anywhere. There is an emphatic balancing throughout these stanzas. Surely he took up our infirmities and you could put that he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the whole thing's brought to a conclusion at the end of verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You couldn't get, apart from using technical theological language, a clearer word picture of the fact that here is a one here is one the servant on whom there is laid the iniquity of others he is there as their substitute it's not just that he was suffering as a result of some wrong action that others had taken he was not just suffering uh, as a result of misconduct of others in a general sense he was there, divinely assigned the task of bearing iniquity. And that is how peace was achieved. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Isaiah was being given insight centuries before our Lord came of the reality of the spiritual dimension of the realities of the transaction that would take place in the life of the servant who had come in place of Israel to pay the penalty for Israel's transgression and open up the way for the people of the Lord to enter into a true and living relationship with him. In verse 6 they give the testimony of their own conduct. We all like sheep have gone astray. And then in the fourth stanza, that's verses 7 to 9, the picture of sheep is taken up in a different way. Sheep is used, they use the language of sheep to refer to their own thoughtless, willful straying. And then they apply it to the servant, not as regards waywardness, but as regards his submission. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. That was the price of true servanthood. It went on 
through imprisonment and affliction, arrest and condemnation, cut off from the land of the living with no one giving any thought what happened to him. He had pursued a policy. And the language is very careful of no violence, non-violence. He had pursued a life where there was no deceit expressed. He was the sinless one. The verdict against him was unworthy. The outcome was unjust. And yet above it all and controlling it all was the superintending purpose of the Lord. The servant was stricken for the transgression of, for the rebellion of my people. One commentator says, no one should adopt the stance of servanthood because of its short-term outcomes. Given the nature of humanity, no one should think that if he lays down his life for others, he will not just be walked over. And here the servant, coming to fulfill God's purpose, that the people of God might enter into the fullness of life, is not only misunderstood, but persecuted. Not only spurned, but put to death, and put to death unjustly. And the overarching purpose of the Lord is then expressed in the closing stanza. This all occurred because it was divinely intended and determined. To understand it, you have to think in terms of sacrifice. It's not the king dying for the sake of his people, but the king dying instead of his people. The language is, in verse 10, is, um, there's a well-known ambiguity there. It's either when his soul makes an offering for sin or when you, the Lord, make his soul an offering for sin. No doubt as to its occurrence. Precise timing wasn't made known to Isaiah. And the word make or set isn't the usual word for bringing a sacrificial offering because this isn't a usual sacrifice this isn't one that was allowed for or laid down in the law of Moses. This is a special divine dispensation that points, I think, to the reality of the servant's voluntary giving of his life. I prefer the rendering when his soul makes an offering for sin, when he himself makes an offering for sin. I lay down my life, another does not take it from me. And the offering that's chosen is the guilt offering. Perhaps because the guilt offering involved offences both against one's fellows and against God and had associated with it reparation as well as sacrifice to God. Here this is an offering that is made that not only bears the penalty of guilt but an offering that also opens up the way for a restored situation. It is sacrifice. It is costly. It is an experience of unmitigated severity. But it achieved its aim. 
It achieved God's aim. It was divinely appointed and so it was divinely rewarded. He will see his offspring. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. Above all, my righteous servant will justify many. He will make many to be accounted righteous. And many is almost a technical term here for the people of the Lord. It's the same use of many as you find in the New Testament. Uh, The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. It is a way of describing the people of the Lord. And so here we have this picture of victory. Just as the fourth servant song began uh, with the servant raised, lifted up and highly exalted, so too it ends with this affirmation. He will, to take the ordinary translation, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. The servant's mission is one that is brought through to victory. But I'm not going to stop there. Because Isaiah doesn't either. We've only got to the end of chapter 53. And there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. So if you just bear with me for a few more minutes. Why are there these, why are there these 13 more chapters? Well, in chapter 54, the prophet begins to spell out the consequences of this. He says, not to Israel this time, but to Zion, the people of God, viewed as what they should be. He says to Zion, be encouraged. Get ready for expansion. Things are now going to change. Your fortunes are going to be turned round because the Lord has not forgotten you. And in chapter 54, there is a very significant change in Isaiah's presentation. Previously, he had talked about the servant of the Lord. And he'd used that language both to describe Israel and to describe the messianic servant. But in the very last verse of chapter 54, he changes from talking about the servant of the Lord to talking about the servants of the Lord. And he continues to use that plural 11 times in the remaining chapters of the prophecy. No longer talks about the servant, but talks about the servants. What he's hinting at, pointing to, is that the servant's success has implications for the servants for whom he died. For instance, in chapter 53, verse 11, the Lord himself declared that the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And here in the last verse of chapter 54, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their righteousness from me. Uh, I don't like the NIV's vindication there. It's the same word, righteousness. They have a standing. They have a position granted them because of the work of the servant. And then in chapter 55, the invitation is extended universally to join the company of those who, dare I say it, are little servants, whose status is provided by another 
and whose obedience is modeled after the servant of the Lord. And the invitation goes to seek the Lord while he may be found. And you might say, yes, well, if he didn't stop at the end of chapter 53, I can see why he added chapters 54 and 55. The expansion of Zion and the free offer of the gospel. But we've still got 11 chapters to go. And that's longer than many of the other prophetic books are. Now, I don't have time to explore all the message. But basically what Isaiah does in the remaining chapters is to say, how can the servants live out in a world of wickedness their relationship, their new relationship with the Lord that's been mediated to them by the suffering servant? How can they live it out and remain true to the vision of the suffering yet exalted servant? And one of the messages he brings out is that to do that there must be an ongoing focus on the one person who is the Davidic king, the suffering servant, but who is also the anointed conqueror. And it's one of the strengths of the recent commentaries by Alec Mateer that he brings out this emphasis. So often studies in Isaiah have suffered because they've been worked out in reaction to critical analysis. But Alec Mateer points out that there are still four further portraits of the Messiah in the remaining chapters. In chapter 59, verse 21, in chapter 61, verses 1 to 4, in chapter 61, verses 10, from verse 10 through to chapter, verse 7 of the following chapter, and again in chapter 63, verses 1 to 6. I haven't time to go through all these passages, but do notice that there in chapter 61, in the second of them, that's the only place where the servant is called anointed in Isaiah's prophecy. He is given the empowering of the Spirit of the Lord. It's his task to proclaim good news to the poor. Here is the message that Jesus himself said in that synagogue in Nazareth. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Isaiah was presenting it to the people of his own generation, to the people who would come back from exile, and to every subsequent generation of the church. Because he was saying, if you're going to live out on your life on the basis of what has been achieved by the suffering of the servant, you must also base it on the way in which the servant himself, as the anointed one, presents his ministry of reaching out to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I'm sure you've had it often pointed out to you that when Jesus quoted this passage in the synagogue in Nazareth, he stopped there. He didn't go on and add the words, the day of vengeance of our God. Not because those words are untrue, but because Isaiah, like all the prophets of the Old Testament, wasn't privileged to know about the twofold nature of the coming of Christ. 
This was a truth that was not revealed till New Testament times. And Jesus himself, speaking with an awareness of the nature of his mission on his first coming, stopped short of the day of vengeance of our God. Not because there isn't a day of vengeance of our God, but because that was not his purpose in his first coming. But that is what is described in chapter 63. Where in verses 1 to 6, the warrior king comes in reddened garments from Bosra. That's not a presentation of the crucifixion, as some earlier scholars supposed. It rather is a picture of the consummation. The language is taken up again in Revelation chapter 19, where it's said of the, the rider on the white horse, who is our Lord himself, that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. The blood-stained garments of the warrior king are the product of his vanquishing evil from his realm, of his final imposition of divine justice on those who are his enemies, the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. If you read through to the very end of Isaiah, you'll find it's got a most peculiar ending. It talks of the citizens of the new heavens and the new earth who will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. In many synagogues, they find that is such a surprising ending to the prophecy that after they've read it, they read the, they read the second last verse again to mitigate its impact. But Isaiah was wanting to bring before the people not just the reality of the year of the Lord's redemption, but also the reality of the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't know when he wrote the prophecy that these two events were going to be separated by many years. But he is showing that the story doesn't end, the servant's success is not complete, until there is ushered in the new heavens and the new earth, which shall remain before the Lord forever. And in that new heavens and new earth, there will be perfect obedience. And there will be those who will not be there. The challenge of the suffering servant is the challenge to trust in him as the one who can provide for the deficiencies that Israel can't make right for themselves. To trust in him as the one who brings light way beyond the ancient people of God to embrace the whole earth. But as the one who will come again and who will maintain God's justice. The opportunity of salvation is there. The reality of achieved redemption is there. But there is also the solemn warning of the fifth gospel, as Matthew Poole termed it, the fifth gospel of Isaiah, where in words that our Lord took up and endorsed himself, there is also the solemn reality of those 
who don't respond at all. May it be rather that we know the glory and the joy of the new Jerusalem where there is the anointed one who provides and provides completely. Thank you. Right. Um, I think we have the normal uh, apparatus which is going to be uh, wielded by my colleague John Errington. Does anyone have a question? If so, please wait until the microphone reaches you uh, and I will endeavour to repeat the question if it cannot be heard. Does anybody have a question? Peter, yes. Uh, the book of Isaiah is uh, truly an epic and uh, I wonder if you might just uh, reflect a little on how it came to be written. Uh, what kind of period of time are we looking at and, and the, the contexts in which it was written? The question is, uh, I, uh, Isaiah is an epic book. Can we hear a little bit more of the context in which it came to be written, when it was written? I'm glad you're asking me to start up again. <coughs> Can I also say that uh, they've certainly got the heating working in here tonight. It wasn't laughing last week, but they've certainly got it tonight. Isaiah's ministry seems to have begun in the year of the death of King Isaiah, which is recorded in chapter 6 and would be dated normally something around 739 BC. He ministered throughout the turbulent period of the years thereafter, which saw the capture of Damascus in 732. Israel was then left as a rump state. Samaria, its capital, was captured in 722. Jerusalem was attacked in 701. And it would seem that Isaiah's ministry continued into the following century. Um, we're not quite sure precisely when it stopped but it would seem to continue perhaps as late as the 680s. So he had a very extensive ministry. And I think that the most realistic manner in which we can understand it is that over the years he wrote down various parts of the material that was revealed to him, but that he came to collect it together at some later stage. I think after the major events of 701 when Jerusalem was besieged and was given such a miraculous deliverance by the Lord. So I think that what happened was that um, Isaiah himself issue, was given by the Lord material to issue. We see him arguing with King Ahaz and that's round about 735 B.C., we see him dealing with Hezekiah around about 700 BC. And I think the chapters that we've been particularly considering tonight probably come from the, his later ministry after the fall of Jerusalem. And he brought them all together. And I think he added, I think, I will go out on a limb and venture the opinion that the last part of Isaiah 
that was written is chapter 1. I'm of the view that Isaiah added that. And notice how chapter 2 begins with another title in verse 1. I I think he added chapter 1 as a sort of introduction to the whole of his collection. And I I say that particularly because in chapter 1, there's that well-known illustration of Jerusalem like a shack in the middle of a field of cucumbers. And that describes Jerusalem at the time of the Assyrian invasion in 701, when the rest of the city was devastated. The second biggest town of Lachish uh, was besieged and captured by the Assyrians. And we still have, uh, I think it's in the British Museum in London, uh, the, the wall monument uh, that uh, recorded the, the fall of, of Lachish. The rest of the land was devastated. And Jerusalem was left, having been besieged itself in a rather unfortunate state, uh, like uh, a shack, uh, a watchman's hut in the middle of a field of cucumbers or melons. We're not quite sure which word it is. So it wasn't something that one night Isaiah said, I must get these 66 chapters finished. It was built up over quite a number of years and he brought it together as a very powerful presentation to the people of Jerusalem and Judah saying, you are not right with God. He begins very clearly by saying this is a rebellious, ungrateful people who've turned their backs and are, no, are worse than the animals who at least know uh, that their master's stable and go there at night. And he then substantiates that case. But it's not just judgment because he has been given this grand vision of the Lord's answer. And he doesn't, I don't think Isaiah himself, we can see more in his prophecy than I think he himself was in a position to see. He knew what he was talking about. He knew that these words referred to the servant who would come. But it's only with the actualization, the realization, the fulfillment of it that we can see in such detail how it was fulfilled in the life of Christ. So it wasn't a one-off effort. It was built up over time and then he took the whole of his material and presented it with what I think is a brand new introduction so that it would speak to the situation. And do remember, if he ministers any length of time after um, the 701, we're into Manasseh's reign. We're into a reign of persecution. We're into a time when the land plummeted. It's one of the most puzzling features of Old Testament history. How often righteous kings had absolute dead lost sons. How you lurched from a Hezekiah to a Manasseh is one of the most puzzling features. Um, But that's another lecture. Um, (laughs) There is a Jewish story that Isaiah died through being sawn in two inside a hollow log in the persecution of Manasseh. And there are some who find that referred to in the epistle to Hebrews 
uh, in chapter 11 in the catalogue of the men of faith, some were sawn asunder. There certainly was an early Jewish tradition to that effect. We're not sure how accurate it was, but that that might very well mean that Isaiah's ministry goes into the reign of Manasseh. Hello there. Um, you just mentioned Isaiah being sawn in the log. Um, I wonder if you could say anything about what the place and value of suffering is in, in a Christian's life. Uh, I've heard about Isaiah perhaps dying by being sawn in half in, in a hollow log. Could uh, the speaker say something about the place of suf- suffering in a Christian's life? Well, we'll have some lectures in the book of Job now. I think that the book of Isaiah presents us with, particularly in the case of the suffering servant, a very clear illustration of the counterintuitive way that the Lord works. So often the church has, I think, been beguiled into thinking that Answers to problems that are posed by the world have to be found at the level of the world itself. Whereas God has shown that it is the strength of his people uh, to, to operate in weakness so that his strength may come through. In other words, if the world comes with very sophisticated arguments we have a natural inclination to try and respond at the same level. Uh, which is sometimes half giving away, and I, I am mindful it's a Christian institute, I'm talking in half half just now, which sometimes seems to half give away the argument. That there is a place for intelligent dialogue, but it's so often been the case that the most effective witness for Christ has not been at that level. It's been in terms of the way in which God has led individual lives through suffering and through witness to his strengthening hand in those situations. That's been true right from the early church, the the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. You see that so often in the church as it's been persecuted, say in communist regimes. Uh, The testimonies that come out have not generally been of individuals converted through um, brilliant intellectual demolition of the case for whatever the belief system is, but through a life that was testifying to the strength of God made evident in weakness and suffering. And God has been pleased to confound our initial responses uh, the, the, the suffering servant, I mean, if we were going to write the scenario for God's deliverance of his people, we would have expected, as in fact the Jews of our Lord's own day did, they expected a deliverer who would come and meet Rome at Rome's level, that's the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire level, just in case you're getting confused, um, with armies, with political opposition. And in fact, he came at quite a different level. And it's so often the case still in the life of the Christian 
that the response, that the way the Lord is using his people's lives is through difficulties and trials and suffering and a constant maintenance of Christian witness in those circumstances. You mentioned again there about the um, Jewish attitude to the suffering servant. Would you, would you like to expand on that? The current, the current thinking as well as... Question on the Jewish reaction to the suffering servant, both perhaps then and now. The Jewish reaction has changed over the centuries as far as I can see. The earliest evidence is that there was some awareness of the messianic nature of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah uh, prior to Christ's coming. But that in reaction to the church's use of Isaiah as testimony for Christ, uh, the Jewish interpretation, which is one that is largely favoured by modern critics, is to see in the suffering servant, the Jewish interpretation is usually the people themselves or the pious remnant within the people. To deny that there is an individual interpretation there, but to emphasize very much the passages that talk about Israel being the servant. And when you then say, but look, the servant is at one point described as blind and deaf, and at another point as being one with whom God is well pleased and who's given the victory, they'll say, yes, but that's the difference between pious remnant within the people and the people as a whole. And I think that is where the majority interpretation is. Jewish, Jewish interpretation is now like Christian interpretation. There are all sorts of varieties within it. Much modern Jewish scholarship is as liberal as much modern so-called Christian scholarship. And they, they, they tend to overlap very much. But the, the way in which they sought to avoid the force of the application of these passages so clearly fulfilled in the life of Christ was to say, no, the servant is, and there are passages to show, the servant is Israel, but they they, they would refuse to acknowledge an individual application. One of the the points you made was that the real question uh, wasn't so much whether the Lord uh, was able to lead his people from exile, but uh, how he could deal with the people's sin. Um, and in Jeremiah, uh, in chapter 31, after having the letter to the exiles, um, giving them the hope of temporary um, you know, redemption and temporary leave from exile, you then have the, uh, the new covenants promised and the messages of hope. I just wonder if you could uh, explain a bit uh, the relationship between Jeremiah and Isaiah in, in the time that they were, whether they overlapped in, in that passage. Um, question about uh, from Jeremiah. Uh, to what extent he, over, he overlapped with Isaiah, particularly the passage from Jeremiah 31, a new covenant. Um, over to you. Well, it's a very good question. <laughs> Too good a question, perhaps. <laughs> this is a problem. Because let's get the time scale straight. Uh, let us suppose Isaiah's ministry came to an end in the early years of Manasseh's reign, 680s. Then Jeremiah's ministry begins 
in the 620s sometime and goes through to 580. So Jeremiah is prophesying a century after Isaiah, at least. That, I think, explains how often you actually get Isaiahic-style language in Jeremiah, especially in some chapters. The prophet himself was aware of Isaiah. But the situation was so dire for most of Jeremiah's ministry that the passages of comfort that had already been delivered to the people do not seem to have spoken to him or impinged on his ministry. He was facing a situation, particularly in the last 15 years or so, of the existence of Jerusalem, where there were hardly any redeeming features left. Early in his ministry, the time of Josiah, things looked as if uh, we're going to pick up again because there'd been this oscillation. Um, Josiah, if my memory serves me right, was the grandson of Manasseh. Um, But in the later part of Jeremiah's ministry, things were dire. And the message of hope that had already been written wasn't, didn't resonate with the prophet and didn't come through in every aspect of his ministry. It's still there, you're right, the new covenant's still there, there is still a way forward. But the circumstances of the day were such that he was not able to hold out any hope to the immediate generation. So perhaps I can put it this way. In the concluding chapters of Isaiah, the time frame, the time perspective is very long. There's a prophecy of Christ 700 years later. In Jeremiah's ministry, the focus is in the closing years just before the the last blow. And the time frame, although there are glimpses of the future, it's very much more immediately centered. And so... In the situation that Jeremiah was immediately ministering to, which is a nation bent on self-destruction, the burden of the message he presented to them was the need for repentance. He did not hold out hope to them because their sin was such that disaster was just round the corner. He wasn't denying Isaiah's message. He shows that he's aware of it, um, He does quote in one place words that are very similar to Isaiah. In fact, in quite a number of places, but I was thinking particularly he uses Isaiah's favorite title for God as the Holy One of Israel, which shows some measure of continuity. But I I would place Isaiah's concluding chapters in those years, very end of Hezekiah's reign, beginning of Manasseh's reign, church beginning to be persecuted, and the people being given a vision, the church is a minority, the true people of God within the land, being given a vision of the future to sustain them. In Jeremiah's day, the focus is on a people who have largely apostatized and who are being challenged for the final time regarding the error of their ways. And the focus is what is going to happen tomorrow. I think that's the way of resolving the tension.